0: Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today, we're going to talk about postpartum hemorrhage. This is one of the key obstetric emergencies that most students will have the opportunity to see during their time on labor and delivery. Um, The definition of a postpartum hemorrhage, we're going to start there, is defined as blood loss greater than or equal to 1,000 cc's of um, blood within 24 hours of delivery, or less than a thousand CCs with vital sign changes. Previously um, the most common definition was greater than or equal to 500 CCs for a vaginal delivery and greater than or equal to a thousand for a C-section. But now we have one unified definition so greater than or equal to a thousand CCs within 24 hours of delivery always counts or it can be less than a thousand but with significant vital sign changes. Um, postpartum hemorrhage is one of the most common obstetric complications um, and one of the most serious too. it's still the leading cause of maternal mortality in the world. So we're going to get into the main causes, and then what we do about postpartum hemorrhage. In addition to seeing this on your on on the wards, you guys will probably also get questions about this on your shelf, because, like I said, it's a huge maternal mortality issue worldwide. And so this is um, something that um, not only obstetricians, but he, but family practice doctors um, and anybody who might be um, in a third world setting where deliveries can occur need to really know about um, also all the the medicines we use for this are pretty niche in that we really only use them in OB. Um, so a lot of these are going to be new, even if you've done several rotations before. Okay. So let's jump into the causes. There are four T's that are the main causes of, um, postpartum hemorrhage. The first one, and it's the answer 80% or more of the time is atony, uterine atony. So the T for that is tone. So tone, um, or lack thereof, in this case, atony, will cause the majority of postpartum hemorrhages. So most of the meds and things we're going to talk about are going to be to attack the uterine tone. The other T's are trauma, which typically takes the form of lacerations or hematomas, tissue, um, so retained tissue, typically placenta or membranes. And then thrombin is... um, the T that makes it work really for any type of coagulopathy. There are some other causes that you'll hear in passing: uterine involution, accretospectrum spectrum disorders, infection, things like that. Um, those are either secondary causes or just far less common, so probably not things that um, you're going to get asked about on the wards. But we're so we're going to go through the most common stuff within um, postpartum hemorrhage: the things you're most likely to get asked on the wards, and then the things that'll probably also show up on your shelf. Um, okay, so you just participated in a vaginal delivery; baby came out. Um, you the placentas come out. And then as soon as the placenta came out, you start getting this heavy vaginal bleeding. So every time you do your uterine massage with your hand on the top of the fundus, you're like, holy moly, there are gushes of blood. You look over your shoulder and make eye contact with your resident to be like, I don't think this is normal. And they're probably going to take over. The first few things that everyone, just about everyone's going to get after a delivery, one um, is one of the things I just said, the bimanual massage or the fundal massage. So um. The what we do first is hand on the belly and see if you can feel the uterine fundus. If you can, great. Um, if they're actively bleeding, we'll put a second hand in the vagina to put it back, back behind, a couple fingers back behind the cervix to really compress the uterus between our two hands, making it thus a bimanual, um, both hands, and then do a massage. So massaging between our posterior hand in the vagina, pushing the uterus up and the top hand on the uterine fundus pushing down and massaging between the two physically irritating the uterus usually helps with tone. You'll see us also do this um, much more obviously during C-sections. Somebody will be actively like rubbing the uterus while we're waiting for the next stitch or if there is bad tone and things like that. So everyone pretty much is going to get some form of bimanual massage or fundal massage, and even if it's just to check the tone and make sure it's good. Um, And then pitocin is the other big one or oxytocin. So just about everybody's going to get a standard dose of oxytocin postpartum. Um, If they don't have an IV, say somebody comes in and precipitously delivers, they don't even have an IV yet, we can give IM, Pitocin 10 units IM, um, but most people are going to get a drip or it's going to be an IV infusion. Um, this has been shown to decrease total blood loss around delivery um, and doesn't increase complications. We actually start the pitocin before the placenta comes out. Um, so there used to be some worries about starting the pitocin before him. Would that retain increase your risk of retained placenta? Would it cause additional complications? And the answer is no. So um, the placenta should or the um, but IV Pitocin should really um, start running um, just as the baby is delivered, and then it is running that whole time to help um, improve your tone and decrease your hemorrhage risks. So you do your Pitocin, you do a massage, it's not looking good, bleeding quite a bit or more than you'd like. We're going to move on to our additional medications. Um There are um, three medications that really target the uterine tone. Um, The first one is mesoprostol. This is a medication you're gonna come across in several GYN settings in addition to OB. but really not used tremendously outside of the OBGYN field. So we use mesoprostol with an OB for postpartum hemorrhage, as we're about to talk about, for induction of labor, and to help with any other type of evacuation of the uterus. So for things like a missed abortion, an incomplete abortion, or even um, a therapeutic abortion, we can use mesoprostol as part of the medication regimen um, to treat those things. So the um, but the doses are very different. So for an induction of labor, for example, we use mic, um, 25 to 50 micrograms. Um, for postpartum hemorrhage, we use either 800 to 1,000 micrograms. Mesoprostol is best absorbed through mucosal surfaces. So that can be buccally, um, vaginally, or rectally. You can swallow it, but the pharmacokinetics are just not as advantageous. Um, so you'll see most of the time when we administer it, we are going to recommend one of those three routes, buccal, vaginal, or rectal. During an acute postpartum hemorrhage, a um, thousand micrograms is five different pills. Um, and if somebody is actively hemorrhaging, it can be um, risky to have them take it buccally if they are at risk of aspiration, if they could, you know, have changes in con- and mental status or consciousness, um, or um, if they could need intubation or anything like that, you obviously don't want any foreign bodies in the mouth. If you're doing this on the early side of things, or when you see us do it for induction, we may well offer the buckle route over the other. um, But most commonly for a postpartum hemorrhage, you're going to see us place it rectally. That is because one, we are already down there. We are usually down in the vagina massaging and things after a vaginal delivery. um, And also there's just not that airway concern for for aspiration with the pills. Um, We really can't place it vaginally if they're bleeding heavily because the, you know, if you see people pass clots from the vagina, a clot could easily just um, wash a couple pills right out before they even have a chance to absorb or um, have any efficacy. So mesoprostol, 800 to 1,000 micrograms once in a mucosal surface, buccally vaginally or rectally. The main contraindication is an allergy to mesoprostol. Very few people um, have a uh, known allergy to mesoprostol. And the main side effect that we are going to watch out for is transient hyperthermia. This doesn't usually give you a true fever, so not usually above 100.4, but it can definitely get you to the high 99s or low 100s in that transient hypothermia if you have to give them a big dose of mesoprostol for a hemorrhage. So just something to keep an eye on and be aware of. Make a mental note when you do that. That way, if you do see a a slightly higher temp later on, um, you might be, uh, weighed in your clinical decision-making on how to react to that temp later on. Our right, next, next medication is methargen Um, and this is an IM injection. Uh, you give them 0.2 milligrams IM, and you can repeat that every two hours as needed. Um, the main contraindication for this is hypertension. So methargen can, um, increase your blood pressure. So if you have, um, particularly like preeclampsia with severe features or um, anything with severe hypertension, we are definitely going to avoid methrogen. If you're not severe or if um, your blood pressures are are soft because or low because you're hemorrhaging, uh, it's a relative contraindication. So we may still um, decide clinically that it's worth doing it. So you can still see it given, but on your shelf and things, you would not give it to somebody who has hypertensive disorder, especially if you have alternatives. Chemobate is your next one. Um, hemabate, you give 0.25 milligrams IM, and this you can repeat every 15 minutes. The main contraindication for hemabate is asthma. Um, hemabate, sorry, the brand name or the generic name is carboprost. Um, that's probably what you'll see on your shelf and things, but, um, the main contraindication of that is asthma. So if a patient has asthma, we can't give them hemabate. It can cause bronchospasms and they can be significant. Um, the main side effect for hemabate is going to be diarrhea and it can be quick and it can be, uh, of voluminous um, to the point that if you have a C section with a hemorrhage and you are um, giving them hemabate during the C section, they can actually have diarrhea on the OR table before you're even able to move them over to a bed. Um, so I always warn moms when I give them hemabate that they may will have some very urgent bowel movements over the next few days. It's more significant, I mean, it's more worrisome for mom when she's had a C section because moving is slow after a major abdominal surgery. And so it can be. Difficult, if not impossible, to make it to the bathroom in time. Um, so we often will discuss with them and offer them um, something like a low modal afterwards to also slow down that um, GI stimulation. If uh, if they're worried about having to mobilize quickly to get to the bathroom for for diarrhea, it can last about 24 hours and then usually subsides pretty quick. All right. So those are the main uh, medications for acne. So pitocin, mesoprostal, methadone, and hemabate. If we make it through the medications or we make it through the medications without contraindications, um, then the next thing we get to are things we need to do. So the first thing that we're going to do physically, like we talked about, was the bimanual massage. If that's not working and we've made it through our meds, one of the next things we can think about doing is um, a tamponade. So If I can't get the uterus to shrink down and come to me in terms of um, putting back pressure on its own cavity to um, put pressure on the bleeding, I can put something in the uterus and um, bring the uterus to that thing. So the original forms of these were balloons. You put a balloon in, you fill up the balloon with um, typically liquid, and you put back pressure on the uterus. So um, the sort of cheapest, easiest one of these is a Foley balloon. Um, This isn't necessarily going to be large enough if you have a term uterus or a recently term uterus. So there are specific ones for term uterus. Uh, Bakri and Utah balloons are two of the biggest um, brand name ones out there, Um, but there are some essentially any empty balloon that you can fill up with liquid and then put back pressure on the uterus. We leave that in for 12 to 24 hours typically, and then slowly deflate it and take it out um, in hopes that the um, natural involution process of the uterus has reduced its size, reduced its blood flow, um, and thus re- reduce your blood loss when we remove it. There's a newer device. It is still oof, a little bit expensive, um, but it works very well. And the data behind it is very good. And that is called the Jada device. This is a suction-based device. So, um, it's a little horseshoe shaped device um, on a stem. You put the horseshoe and it looks like an upside down horseshoe up in the uterus. Um, There's a balloon then at the cervix, you blow up the balloon to make the uterus a closed system. You can then put suction on that horseshoe portion of your device and it sucks the uterus down to itself. So again, makes the uterus get smaller and put back pressure on itself with the help of this suction device. This can usually stop bleeding very quickly. Um, It can be left in as little as two hours and up to the 12 to 24, but um, it is, it Works faster than the balloons because it it is physically bringing it down to the right size rather than allowing the uterus to contract at a much larger size when it then still has to adjust. Um, but like I said, it's it's like a thousand dollars currently at least at my institution, and so um, it is. We we try to pick and choose carefully who we use it on simply because of uh, I think of the cost and the, um, you know, American medicine. All right, so put something in the uterus to help it come down to you. There are more options. Another thing you can do, um, we try not to do it in people who want to have more kids, but something called a uterine artery embolization. This is where you then take the patient to IR, interventional radiology, and they um, make a small um, incision in the groin, typically to access the femorals and snake their way up with fluoroscopy to the uterine arteries and put gel foam in the uterine arteries. If we block the blood flow to the uterus, this should reduce our blood flow. Your uterus also has um, significant collaterals f- that come down from your aorta to your pelvic el- ligament, your IP, and then across in your utero-ovarian um, complex and um, vascularize the fundus. So this is not all your blood flow to your uterus, but it can get a significant portion of the uterus um, and reduce your blood flow. The reason we don't love to do it on people who want to have future kids, there's not great studies looking at future childbearing after UAEs. Um, and so we always worry a little bit about um, their future um, fertility and any implications for future pregnancies. Um, that being said, if, we cho- if we're if we having to choose between doing, the, doing a UAE and potentially having her hemorrhage to death, certainly a UAE is a far better choice. Um, finally, there are compression sutures you, that we can physically do. These are easy during a C-section because obviously we already have the uterus in our hands. Um, the first one is called a B-Lynch suture. Again, I don't think you'd be asked about any of these sutures, but um, you could certainly see them um, and knowing their names is not a bad thing. So there's a B. Lynch suture in which it kind of looks like we're putting um, suspenders around the top of the uterus. We anchor them to the lower uterine segment, um, take them around over the back of the uterus, anchor it to the lower uterine segment in the back, pull it back around the front, compress the uterus, and then tie them super tight. Um, This is supposed to just hold external pressure on the uterus, even when my hands are physically not there to hold pressure on it. There's a box suture, which is a similar idea. It's a front to back um, suture that just um, holds the uterus together from front to back. And then finally, there's an suture, which is sort of like a UAE in that um, it's a compression suture of the uterine arteries. So it's me using my actual stitch because I have her, her uterus in my hands to compress those uterine arteries and decrease blood flow. Again, limited evidence for future fertility in patients who've had to have O'Leary's. And so we worry a little bit about it. Um, but again, certainly a better choice than risking losing her uterus or um, maternal mortality. So final, the final, truly the last ditch effort here is a hysterectomy removal of the full uterus to try, um, try, try and stop the bleeding and save the patient's life if that is all we can do to stop the bleeding and save her life. Um, okay. So that is tone. Um, <clears throat> Quick rundown on the meds. Oxytocin, pitocin first. Mesoprostol typically is second because it's shelf-stable, room-stable. It doesn't have to be refrigerated and it's really cheap. Um, and there's a few contraindications. After those two, we typically go to either methogen or hemabate. Um, methogen tends to be um, more commonly the next choice uh, if they don't have hypertension, uh, simply because it has fewer side effects um, for people who don't have hypertension. And then hemabate um, needs to be refrigerated. So that one is typically or often um, further down the choice. Um, then we have tamponade with a Bakri-Utah balloon blowing it up in the uterus or a Jada to suck the uterus down to a smaller size. Uterine embolization done by interventional radiology or a laparotomy if you're already, if you already have her belly open for compression sutures or even a hysterectomy if needed. Um, that is tone. We're going to move on to number two for the causes of bleeding, which is trauma. So sometimes, um, the vaginal delivery again, baby comes out, placenta comes out and you're like, she is just hemorrhaging. Um. But it's not happening necessarily when you put on fundal pressure, things like that. And you take a look in the vagina and you realize, oh my gosh, no, she just has a really bad laceration. And there's an artery that clearly got transected and and it is pumping blood out of this um, this, uh, laceration. You can have vaginal lacerations that bleed like this. Um, Less common type of laceration that really can bleed badly, though, is also called a a cervical laceration where your cervix actually um, splits as the baby is dilating it. Um, the typically for suit for laterations, all we're going to do is we're going to fix them surgically. We're going to put sutures in them. Um, and then if that doesn't work, if it's just oozy, which sometimes happens to, we will do what's called vaginal packing <clears throat> or putting packing material into the vagina. The random thing you need to think about with this is when we pack the vagina, we're putting back pressure on the full 360 of the vagina, right? That includes the urethra. So if you're going to put packing in the vagina, you need to put a Foley in the bladder because she, that is, we're compressing, we're, artificially compressing her urethra and she probably will not be able to pee that is trauma third one is tissue. Um, mm-hmm. Tissue is typically takes the form of retained products of conception, so placenta or membranes. Um, and this we often know once a placenta comes out. So if you're with me as a student, um, typically what I do is you if you deliver the placenta, you are going to then examine the placenta. But typically, whoever delivers the placenta should look at it. We need to make sure it's intact. We need to make sure there's no obvious piece missing. We need to make sure there's a reasonably um, reasonable amount of membranes. So typically, I pull up the membranes and I try to make a little balloon out of them. Does it look like a baby could fit in here? Does it pass that gestalt? Ah, that looks reasonable to me or it doesn't. There's not a measurement for this. It's just something you get used to looking at. Um, If it looks like there aren't enough membranes or it looks like there could be a uh, missing piece of placenta... Sometimes what we'll do is a manual sweep in which we take our hand and we sweep all the way up into the uterus to try and um, remove any pieces of placenta or membranes. Um, We try to avoid this because obviously, um, while you'll be wearing sterile gloves and a gown and things like that, the vagina and the vulva and the anatomy that's involved, none of this is sterile. Um, And so we can introduce infection into the uterus by doing this. So we only do it if we really feel like we need to, um, but certainly is a good option, particularly for patients with an epidural. Without an epidural, that can be pretty... um, um, painful. So uh, a lot of things going into our decision-making for how to proceed with suspected retained products. You can use an ultrasound to look for them as well um, to try and re yourself. And then you can use instruments in the uterus to remove um, products if you're not able to do it manually with your hand. Um, the fourth T is thrombin or coagulopathy. Um this is thrombin is just the what makes it work as a T, honestly, but any type of coagulopathy can lead you to bleed, right? Like if you're not able to make a clot, um, you're not able to stop your own bleeding and you've got a huge raw placental bed, um, that was hypervascularized to feed a term fetus, um, that now is just bleeding. So one of the best things, um, for coagulopathies these days is TXA or tranexamic acid. Tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic, um, And it helps uh, your body maintain its blood clots for longer by reducing your body's predisposition to break down. Your body's supposed to have a balance of making blood clots and breaking them down. This lets them hang out a little bit longer in people who are having trouble making and maintaining their blood clots. So TXA, we give them one gram one time. The other time you'll come in contact with TXA probably is um, major surgeries and trauma is the big place. So this is a medication that started um, its uh, life in trauma for just... um, reducing blood loss, transfusions, and mortality, and has now made its way into um, a lot of bigger surgeries, spine surgeries, um, oncology surgeries, things that tend to be bloody, hysterectomies for us even, it has benefits, Um, but for obstetrics particularly. um, There were some initial worries that it could um, increase your risk of uh, DVT-PE because Pregnant women are particularly at risk. Um, they're already hypercoagulable, but the studies have not borne that out in trauma, which is also a hypercoagulable population or in obstetrics. So it doesn't seem to increase your risk of DBTPE. So we give one gram one time. If it's during a C-section, um, anesthesia can usually run it. And if it's during a um, vaginal delivery, one of the nurses can push it. Um, and um, it's nice because, again, it's one time, it's not an infusion. It goes in quickly and it works pretty quickly. The biggest studies that have been done on it show it reduces mortality. So mortality, death, like it actually can reduce your death from obstetric hemorrhage. So this is a great medication. Um, it's becoming more more common and more accessible and thus the price is decreasing, which is great. Um, so it's something you're going to probably hear about on your rotation, but some of your older resources may not include it because this is really a change in the last three to five years. Um, other things to think about as somebody is hemorrhaging, we are giving them fluids, right um, and if you're in an obstetric room like just a vaginal delivery room, uh, those we typically don't have our fluids on warmers and um, patients are often naked to half naked um, holding a wet baby covered in fluids um, they can get cold really quickly if if a patient gets cold, their coagulation factors don't work as well so if you're actually if you're if you're really passing that hemorrhage, Point and you're not seeing improvements. You got to think about making sure we're warming up the patient. Turn up the heat in the room. Um, dry her off. Get blankets on her. Get a get a fluid warmer for any fluid resuscitation that you're doing to try to reduce the hyper hypothermia from impacting your coagulation. Um, and then we start thinking about other coagulation factors. Um, women in um, around childbearing or people around childbearing. Um, have an increased risk of DIC compared to other types of hemorrhage. And in the obstetric world, abruption really increases your risk. So for particularly for your they love to do this. They'll give you a patient, they'll give you either risk factors for abruption or a clinical scenario that sounds like an abruption, and then she'll bleed. And then um, they'll ask you what product she might need. If you think it's DIC, the right answer is going to be FFP to treat your DIC. We need to replace those factors and FFP is going to be your most direct and easiest way to replace those factors um, for DIC. Um, And then... In some institutions, you'll have things like Rotem or a rotational thromboelastogram, things like that, that are going to help you pinpoint what other factors you may or may not need to replace. Again, in the obstetric world, one of the things that's often overlooked is calcium. Calcium is really critical to many steps in the coagulation cascade. Um, and people can, can get really hypocalcemic around the time of delivery because your uterus and your contractility of your uterus relies on calcium as well. So if somebody's really hypocalcemic, their uterus won't contract, they won't coagulate, and they're just going to bleed and bleed and bleed. Um, so often, if you're already trained. Fusing somebody, you got to think about giving them back some calcium as well. All right. Um, Again, a brief review of other random types of hemorrhage or causes. You might hear uterine um, involution, where the uterus like turns inside out, like think that like an inside out sock, um, and then it can't contract because it's in a weird position. Um, Placenta accreta spectrum disorders and infections can also increase your risk of hemorrhage or worsen your hemorrhages. Quick rundown of the medications you're going to see in this. Mesoprostol, so for a hemorrhage, pitocin first. Mesoprostol, 800 to 1,000 micrograms, rectally most common. Methogen, 0.2 milligrams IM, um as long as you don't have hypertension. Hemabate 0.25 IM, um, as long as you don't have asthma. Um, and then TXA, no, um, very few contraindications in the obstetric world. Um, prior MIs um, are a contraindication and there's a few others, but thankfully there's not a lot in the like obstetric populations. Um, so most patients can get TXA. Um, and then, um, if you need to go further than just your meds, tamponade, Bakri, Utah, or JADA device, uterine emboli- artery embolization or UAE, and then laparotomy with compression sutures and hysterectomy is your last ditch effort. Um, and if you're asked about why somebody's hemorrhaging, acne. 80% of the time, just don't think, just say acne. The answer is usually at me that's maybe the one question you get during the actual wards. Most of the rest of this is stuff you're going to see. We're not going to ask you during an emergency, but um, you'll see it and then it'll help you solidify it for your shelf and for um, later on in life if you decide to join us in the fun field of obstetrics. All right. If you have questions or anything, let me know. Otherwise, have a great day. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review your reviews seriously make my day every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new clerkship ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a procedure ready or clerkship ready podcast for their specialty, pass along your information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at procedureready.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.